and this is the Light on Leeds podcast where we aim to shine a light on all of the amazing people in Leeds and the crazy, great, amazing things they're doing. This week's guest is Kenneth Barker. He's a producer, writer, director and filmmaker. He has his own film company, Water on the Rocks. It's a Leeds-based independent film company and it's been going since 1998. He has five feature-length films that you can see. Um, there'll be lots of notes in the podcast. Um, it's great just to speak to Kenneth uh, about how he got started, some of the trials and tribulations he's faced. And yeah, just to chat to him in general, I think you're going to really enjoy it. Have a listen. On this episode of the Light on Leeds podcast, I have Kenneth Barker, producer, writer, director, filmmaker, come to speak to me. Hi, Kenneth. Hazel, how are you? I'm really great, thank you. Um, really great to be able to speak to you. I think we've, we've been back and forth a bit <laughs> trying to uh, make it happen, but here we are. Glad to be here. Thanks for your patience and what a great opportunity to just speak to you and talk about making films. Yeah, excellent. So can you tell me, Kenneth, how did you get involved in all of this? Is, is film been something that you've always been fascinated by? Yeah, I think, bizarrely, if you look at um, me as a kid from primary school to where I am as an adult, it's all virtually a straight line of progression in terms of being interested in storytelling. Uh, I loved, at school, primary school, books about fairies and people going on adventures. And my older sister, she, I think if I recall correctly, you had um, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, and I remember seeing some of the artwork and the illustrations, how they just made my mind go, wow. It was so exciting to see um, these fictional characters going off to these fantasy uh, places. But then the bug really hit me, I think probably in 1990. I've got a guy called um, Irvin Kirshner. Some of the listeners will know that name to really thank because he directed Robocop 2. I was a big fan of the original in 1986 um, or 87. Yeah. I went to see the sequel at a special midnight screening in my hometown. And um, I came out shocked, but grossly disappointed. And it made me think, well, you know what? I'd like to have a go at making a film. I think I can do better. And <laughs> so that's where I started. <laughs> and how did you begin? What sort of equipment were you using? Oh... Uh, <laughs> Wow, I'm almost. I'm not ashamed to say because it's actually the truth. Um, I acquired this really old format Super 8 camera. Super 8 is a really very basic home um, filming format, which was, I think, prevalent in the 70s and the late 60s. Yeah. And um, the one I got, I can't remember where it came from. I think it may have been someone in the local newspaper, but that allowed me to go off and shoot. Um, a really rudimentary film and then as time progressed that film got me into film school and then later on after film school I realized look I want to make something bigger and better and um bizarrely I managed to get a hold of this uh high eight camera which is now a completely defunct old tape format that allowed me to shoot a better quality my girlfriend at the time um I probably kept battering her ears I said I want to make a film I want to make a film I've got all these ideas and um she offered to give me 200 quid I think it's probably money to shut me up. But, <laughs> um, armed with my little high eight camera and 200 pounds, I wrote this wonderful story called Kingdom about the last dragon sanctuary in modern day uh, Leeds, effectively, in Yorkshire. And off we went. Plus a bit of a major detour on the way, but that's essentially how I made the jump from being a little Thai filmmaker to being a bit more ambitious. Oh, great. And so where did you go to film school? It was a Northern School of Film and Television, which is oh. in Leeds. And back in the early 90s, it was regarded as one of the top three schools, film schools in Europe, bizarrely. Wow, that's amazing. It's, and what, do you, what do you feel that you learned there then? You know, wow, what a question. That was a postgraduate diploma for one year. It was an incredibly intense course. Uh, I actually pretty much didn't enjoy the course. It was so... Um, how can you put it? A baptism of fire. 
Yeah. And he really get, got to meet a lot of people, a lot of mini Spielbergs, a lot of egos. Um, on the flip side, though, I learned by trade from the ground upwards. Literally, we shot on super, sorry, on 16mm film, which is still a relatively current high-quality format. And we had to take the film from first idea right through to production. And I really learned my craft of how to crew a film up, um, working with so many different uh, specialist people, and then really having the tenacity to stick it out to the end. It was a one-year course. I ended up staying for two years, bizarrely. That's the thing about film. It kind of metamorphoses around you. Uh, but I have one thing I really massively took on board and learned for that year is, certainly film-wise, if I start something, I finish it. The film is has no value if it's had a lot of people contribute to it, you shoot to it, but you lack the gumption and the vision to complete it. So that film was completed, and that's just been something I've been immensely proud of, getting through all those challenges. Yeah, of course, definitely. So when you made Kingdom, was it was it the idea of the story that comes first and then you have to sort of build how it is you're going to portray that? Absolutely. It's um, I like to joke, it's too much cheese before bedtime because the story <laughs> is pretty well. Is that, the, that came around after... I was at film school in the mid-90s and I, you specialise in your particular area, so I specialised as a producer. And during that time, I started to realize, well, I really enjoy kind of creating things. I knew that anyway. And um, I wrote several screenplays. I sent them off to the big production companies like, you know, Working Title, who'd made Notting Hill and there's other things starring Hugh Grant. And um, they all pretty much wrote back saying, Ken, wonderful idea. But you know what? Don't give up your day job. You know, we're going to use this to prop the doors open or whatever. So <laughs> I've always kind of joked that... Um, all the rejection letters I've had, I could pay for my flat. Because literally, until about the beginning of the year, I kept all of them. And I've had some glorious rejections. One of the favourite ones was from um, the former chairman of um, British Home Stores, Sir Philip Green. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he writes beautiful rejection letters. They are clearly dictated, but you can, I don't never met the man, but you can see there's a particular style to them. And so the, the big thing for filmmakers is it's just securing finance, trying to get money to produce your film. So you write to the most weird and wonderful people to try and get backing. Wrote yeah. to him and twice he bounced me out. Um, I've, I've written to more people than I care to think of. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's just keeping going is the tricky part. And I realized when I'm getting rejected by all these people, I thought, well, hang about. Ken, you've just been at film school. You've got all these skills. You know, all these creative people around you. Build your own network. Build your own film. Um, and I, I, I love dragons. I love all that kind of fantasy stuff and um, a bit of sci-fi. Also street drama as well. And the, the bonkers idea of making a film with computer-generated dragons in um, just massively appealed to me. In 1990, I think, seven, when the film was first written, that's still quite a major feat for Hollywood. So here am I coming on as a little upstart with virtually no money and I want to make this ambitious film. So I think I had a little lie down for a moment and I realised, <laughs> let's get up and let's give it a go. <laughs> that's fantastic. So computer-generated dragons. So did you have to teach yourself quite a lot of new skills? Massively and all the time. And luckily I met, um, <laughs> I suppose I was chief nutter. And I, well, hopefully that's not a disrespectful term to myself. I met a group of other people who are perhaps similarly as crazy as me, but who wanted <laughs> to come out and play and bring their skill sets. So I had a fantastic editor called Heidi Steiner, who was at film school with me. She edited the film. And I met a wonderful gentleman called Arif uh, Majofi, who's based over in uh, Jewsbury. Arif was an absolute wizard when it came to visual effects. He saw into my vision he brought tremendous humour to the project, and it was Arif who and a guy called Gary Roundtree who helped me create the dragons for the film to make them computer generated. And um, we actually had the dragon um, basic models scanned at the I think it's um, Framesaw, the computer film company. These are the guys who do Walking with Dinosaurs down in, in London with the BBC and all those really high brow things. 
Oh, and wow. they were scanning our little dragons for our little film. So, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And had you, how did you cast the film? Did you already have, again, like a group of people that you'd come across because of film school? Um, cool question. I'm trying to think back. Generally, there may have been one or two which circulated in that kind of orbit of being around creative people. But I used a thing called PCR back in the day called Production and Casting Report. It's a small, any of the actors out there will, will recognize PCR. It's a small little A5 size brochure, red covers on. And it, um, if you're making a film pretty much of any scale, you'd put your casting notice in there and it would get sent to all the actors in the UK. Because uh, when I made my first film, I put a notice in there. And that's the same issue as Luke Besson had his casting notice in for The Fifth Element. So, oh, really? Yeah, his huge film and my tiny little film. Um, <laughs> and I had a load of people come from, literally, which, which I absolutely bow to the generosity of so many actors and crew because I've had people come from all over the country to take part in Kingman. We shot on a minuscule budget. Uh, I had a better, wonderful lead called Simon Kirk, who played the main character. Uh, Manuk van der Mullen, who's from uh, Holland, she played like the, the dragon catcher. She absolutely respectfully chewed the scenery up. She was having such fun playing the big bad. She just made the whole thing work so well. Uh, and she went on afterwards to do a um, same-sex love scene in a Touch of Frost or something. Was, oh, wow. I remember that getting center-page spread, I think, in the Daily Mirror, because at the time it was still a bit, ooh. <laughs> risque on the screen but uh, Manuk was great in the script so yeah actors came from pretty much across the UK and we had uh, several regional ones as well and, and how long did it take you to finish that you know do the whole thing from start to finish oh well if you could see me in person I start off with lots of lovely hair now I'm quite <laughs> bald and grey because uh, we had to work around various um, day jobs and other bits and pieces so I I'd estimate we started shooting in um, May 1997, uh, I think 97 or 98, and we finished it in time for the premiere around about um, November, October 1999. Oh, okay. Um, so it's quite some time, and one of the bugbears is not having any money. It means everything's on a very elongated schedule. It'd be great yeah. to be able to move so much faster. We had a... Um, what we did do, and I was very lucky to meet a small private investor who put a small amount of money into the film, which allowed us to shoot at a higher quality and actually pay a few bus fares for people. Um, and he bought all the various computer equipment we needed to actually shoot the film on and everything else. And we were going to have a premiere at the Metropolitan Hotel in Central East, a black tie premiere. Wow. Um, so we booked all the cast and the crew and the sponsors because I wanted to say thank you. So many people generously gave time for no fee. They just wanted to do it because they could or put back. Um, one of the key actors in the film was a guy called Alan O'Keefe. I don't know if there's a name you recognise at all, Hazel. I, I don't think so. He was the lead actor in Zed Cars. Oh, wow. <laughs> from years ago. And he came out to have a play playing one of the um, eccentric millionaires who own the legal company who protect the estate where the dragons live, essentially. So we had this wonderful, uh, well, before the premiere, when everything is getting lined up, we're still technically finishing the film. And the premiere is booked for about two months into the future, so 19th of November 1999. Um, and I'm editing one day, and all of a sudden, the entire, I'm editing on a computer, I should listen to that, the entire system just folds up and crashes and it wipes <gasps> the entire film. <laughs> oh no oh but even now i think about it it just makes me go oh and literally hazel that was the first time i lost weight without actually doing anything because i think my body chemistry changed in an instant because you suddenly realize you've probably got about 175 people coming to this beautiful hall we have booked we've had catering laid on people have bought dresses people have booked rooms to stay in the hotel and I couldn't face going there and saying, actually, everybody, I've screwed up and the film has been lost. <laughs> oh, God, what did you do? Well, my partner at the time, she was a graphic designer. And I realized 
and when she started looking at how we were editing the film, this is still relatively early in the days of uh, computer editing. Uh, when you go to your program, be it Word or Photoshop or whatever it might be, when you go open to, to open and update your project file, um, yeah. it comes up and you carry on typing. But what we were doing on this particular piece of software, every day we'd do the, Heidi would do the editing and then she would save it. But I told Heidi, and this is not her fault at all, it's my fault, I told her, okay, we need to pick up the next morning. Um, go import your project file, not open your project file. So every time we were importing it, the project was becoming massively, effectively nested inside itself. It's like analogy would be like going inside a more ever-increasingly complex maze. And every day the maze would double in size. So it got to the point where the computer, poor thing, just uh, tossed its cookies out and just completely wiped everything. So, luckily, I knew the film at that stage. I was doing the finishing touches back to front. All the footage remained on the computing system. It was just the order to reassemble it in. So, realizing what I'd done, having actually reading the instructions properly, I was able to just re-edit the entire film based on what Heidi had done, just effectively clone it from memory. And we got to the point, I think it was, I don't know, probably about two weeks before the premiere, where I finally got the film to output itself onto a master tape, which meant we could project it. And at that moment, I was so happy. One of the other guys turned up, one of the landlords where the building I was living in, he happened to turn up as I was just starting this process. I was so happy. I wanted to kiss him just to go, <laughs> woohoo! But I restrained myself and we just shook hands and I told him and I was, everything went beautifully. It was a fantastic evening from there. Oh, great. So you had the premiere and everyone was pleased. Very much so. It's just nice to um, have people to see the work. And one thing I've uniquely found about making films is people love to tell you exactly how they feel about your work. This is friends or not. Some people go, Ken, you know, that was really great. And I've had people say, Ken, that was <laughs> So, uh, yeah, people, you always create a reaction. Uh, and it's just nice to have, you know, many of the key cast there. And for me, and all the sponsors, and for me to say, guys, this is what we've created together. Thank you so much for taking part. That's amazing. And so when you had, you, you know, you've, you've gone through all of your trials and tribulations and you've, You've had your premiere. Was there a part of you that thought, well, I'm never doing that again? Or were you quite quickly thinking of your next project? The latter. I love it. I'm obsessed. I think sometimes it can actually almost almost destroy relationships. Stories, in my mind, for me, without being gross, like mental diarrhea. The <laughs> next story was coming along. Things inspire you. And um, I think it's... It's almost a vocation because it was a calling to, I have to tell this story. That's where the dragons come from because I could see it in my mind's eye and I knew I have to tell that story. And then when the next project came along, that was inspired by um, just that little notion of, do you know who your neighbor is? Could they be an astronaut? Could they be a major surgeon? Could they be royalty from a far off country which you didn't know about? And then I thought, well, imagine if your neighbor, you didn't know, turned out to be an opera singer who just missed her chance on superstardom and she ends up living next to you as a recluse. And that was the genesis for my next film. So things just come out randomly. Yeah, definitely. And so what was that film called? That film was called Rosetta Prima Donna Assoluta. Rosetta, number one singer. Wow, that sounds great. So did you actually have to find somebody who could sing opera? Uh, well, we cheated there because I knew it was going to be a major cost to license uh, music for a singer and to have that music overdubbed. Yeah. So um, I wrote it really about, um, there's an opera singer called, called Maria Callas. I don't know yeah. if you know that name. Okay. Yep. Well, I imagine in my story, she had somebody called Rosetta de Kirchi, who's like a predecessor for her. But Rosetta very sadly became ill with a polyp on her throat. So she had a choice. She could have surgery on her larynx or whatever it might be to cure this, but she would never sing again professionally. Or if she didn't have surgery, the prognosis would be pretty grim. So she decides to have the surgery. Her career disappears after making some very successful recordings. 
and then she ends up living in Leeds over a record shop as a recluse. So um, I did, I put out a casting notice, I think, and once again, my little PCR, Production and Casting Reporting, and there is a very well-known coffee shop in the city centre uh, of Leeds, and it's run by a certain lady, and I went in there to, to see her to say, I'm looking for um, an Italian lady of a certain maturity. You know, would you happen to know anybody who could be in this little film I'm making? Because this kind of could be fun and it's semi-serious and got great music in. And this particular lady said to me, basically, Kenneth, go away. Oh. Just leave me alone. Um, but by coincidence, on the same day, the Yorkshire Evening Post uh, picked up my story. So there's a picture of me and my casting director saying we're auditioning for the lead character for this wonderful film, Rosetta Primadonna Assoluta. Um, here's our phone number, blah, blah, blah. And literally, this lady who rejected me out of the hand, all of a sudden turned around and she just she was ringing me multiple times to be in the film and they even got onto um i think it was uh calendar rang me to say uh we would like to film you auditioning this particular person um but they wanted me to do it in a non-serious way and i'm not particularly up myself about my work but this particular film was more serious and it was a serious process so I declined their invitation because I thought, no, we, we, I want to make something which is, um, you know, it's got some artistic merit and, you know, doing like a mock silly yeah. audition just doesn't work. So No, it sounds like a really odd thing for them to ask you to do, really. Totally, totally. So that was a big no on that one. Uh, I did meet a fantastic lady in the end who I think pulled off an Italian accent incredibly well. And she was from Scarborough. Oh, places. wow. But she really impressed me um, during the audition and um, she became the character. So, yeah, we got that film produced. And that's actually free for anybody to view on YouTube. It's Rosetta Primadonna Assoluta. It's, I call it a rainy Wednesday afternoon melodrama. You just want to cuddle up and watch a film about this group of characters and how they care for each other. Uh, it's got great music in. So we can put the music on from licensable uh, music. So it's open, not open source. It's um, Creative Commons license. That's why it's on YouTube. If you want a cheap evening at the opera, anyone, go along, look it up, and get your volume turned up. <laughs> That's great. Did you did you learn anything from Rosetta from Making Kingdom? Did you do anything sort of differently? Yes, we did actually. Um, all respect to the actors in Kingdom, there was. One day we were shooting in a museum in Bradford. I think it was an, uh, an agriculture museum. Sorry, I can't remember its name. But the actors, um, bless them, my little actor friends, got into a long conversation about how they should do a particular scene. And um, for reasons, I I think I was just shy or a bit scared perhaps, but I, I didn't freeze. I just let them talk too much. Right. And eventually I reined it back in and then got on, we finished the film, etc. Then sometime later, several days later, one of the crew said to me, Kenneth, uh, we're all following you. We, you know, you should have stopped that conversation a lot sooner because we lost a lot of time. And that really was a good lesson to me because certainly as a director and well, more so as a director than a producer, when you say action and cut, you need to be on your game because the crew are looking at you to get it right, to know what you want exactly. And if you show a sign of weakness, I think they can start to lose faith in you. Luckily, no. we got so far into the production, people could see, sure, I didn't know everything and I was open to ideas, but I knew what I wanted. So that little blip was a really good lesson. And during Rosetta, yeah, different actors, of course, but, you know, and going forward from there, I've never allowed that to happen again. Can you explain to me, I've always found this difficult to understand, I'm, I'm really into film, but what is the difference between the roles of a director and of a producer? Essentially, the producer, would, I would say, is the bigger role. If you have the two separate, the producer will generally come up with the idea. They will commission the script from a screenwriter, uh -huh. a screenplay. They will organise the entire infrastructure for the project and then the producer will bring on the director. So the director is responsible for the entire artistic vision of what the film is. 
Whereas the producer's kind of in charge of the, the sort of overranging project, the, the all of the logistics, everything. Spot on. Perfect. Exactly so. So ideally, those two personalities, their vision should meet. Otherwise, you just create clashes. You end up with films which don't get completed. But yeah, it's logistics versus artistic vision can make a happy marriage. And you were doing both of those roles for these films? Yes, I couldn't find anybody silly enough to do it for me. So... <laughs> Uh, it was easier, and I think it's actually great. The technology, today's technology, allows you to do so much more with fewer people. But I do believe in keeping specialists for each particular trade. And right now, for me, it is generally been easier to wear both hats: start off originating the story, write it myself, but then switch mode to become a director, and just surround yourself with layers of really good, talented people who are hungry for an opportunity. We've got skills they want to come back and share. Because one thing I've seen so many times is had a lot of people from the major film industry have come back and have wanted to put in, not for any money, just because they can and the generosity. And um, people talk about Richard Attenborough being a big lovey. Yeah. Everything else. And for years, I always kind of laughed at her thinking how quaint. And then I really realized in later films, um, lovey is actually is a beautiful thing is because he's talking about the generosity of people's spirit in a, literally on a film set and sometimes the work is incredibly hard and the troopers will come up and they'll just keep going or they'll cheer you up they'll they'll freely give of their time into my mind ah i get that now you know you're being a lovey it's nothing um being pretentious it's you know people just wanting to give the best because at the end of the day the audience won't know what wrangles or what acrimony or whatever else went on behind the scenes. They'll just want to see this beautiful film. And that comes through having great people just being generous and just wanting to become that film. Yeah, that's lovely, isn't it? Mm. And so after Rosetta, where did your mind go next? Well, for re I bring, there's a guy called Christopher Nolan. Do you know if you know that name? I do, yeah. He's the big Hollywood director. He started with very humble beginnings. And he did Batman Begins, which was a tremendous film. And for reasons which will never become adequately explained anytime soon, I thought, well, what happens if you turn the notion of that very dour, serious superhero on its head? And I just had this vision of doing a transvestite superhero. Yeah, why not? Absolutely. And um, I was speaking to somebody at my day job about it, and they, I must have just glibly said something, and they kind of reflected it back on me, and it made me laugh. And I loved the notion of, um, okay, let's just play it straight. And But the notion of this person just wanting to change their outer appearance to become the superhero just tickled me. So that's how Catalina, a new kind of superhero, came into being. Um and um, the, actually, the film is played incredibly straight. The notion, the humour is in the, the premise of, you know, the guy, person changing. He has um, female girlfriends. And uh, since completing the film, I had a friend of mine who's actually um, realised they wanted to change their gender identity. They wanted to be a trans woman now, becoming a trans woman. And... Um, I knew this person when we were shooting Rosetta, so I thought, oh, hell, have I stood on someone's feet? Have I been disrespectful? But they were okay, and they realised what I was trying to do. And um, so it is a you know, it's a nice message. Most importantly, it's just an entertainment, which is just simple fun. Yeah, it definitely. fun at people's lifestyle. Yeah. And also nice for people to see themselves represented. Absolutely. Certainly as a black filmmaker, uh, I see relatively few and, you know, it's hard for a lot of people, but, um, you know, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that actually, because in Rosetta, I wanted to cast a black lead against the opera singer and it just seemed to be impossible to get a black actor. I did find one in the end, Daniel Martel Gardner, and there's another wonderful chap, but he emigrated um, to Australia. Oh. So he would have been fantastic. Daniel was Daniel was very good himself, but it is a problem finding um, people of color who want to be behind and in front of camera. But certainly with um, what's my favorite? Catalina, a new kind of superhero. I met a, a guy who was going to be in another film, and he auditioned so well, and he made me laugh, and he had a great look. 
it just made me think, well, actually, I've got this idea for this transvestite superhero film. You know, there's a guy called Nathan Lubbock Smith who auditioned for something else, and I just I couldn't get them out of my head. And I said, look, would you be interested in appearing in the lead in Catalina? And he snapped my arm off. So off oh, we went. Excellent. Um, and with these first three films, what sort of feedback did you get from people? It's still ongoing. Those films are still out there in the um, off my website and other places. It's funny enough, um, Catalina has just been picked up by Gay Binge TV, a streaming channel. Oh, wow. Uh, by all means, it's going strong. Um, Kingdom pops up in from time to time in different places. It's on the BFI yearbook as well. So that must, that must be great for you to, you know, something that you've made such a long time ago still still, you know, creating ruffles and people noticing and getting in touch. Absolutely. It's tremendous. I remember in particular when the kingdom was relatively uh, fresh out of the blocks. Um, I, I must have done a radio show or something because a guy rang up. I wish I would have kept the message. Or I think it was an email he may have sent where he may have been a verbal message, but he said his grand films watched his grandkids watched Kingdom um, back to back twice. And they just enjoyed it because you've got these actors running around Temple Newsom and Lofferton Hall and um, where's there's another place, uh, Kirk Salabi, where yeah. the sections were. So people are recognizing things in the region. But then we have these talking dragons. So for a film with little budget, even back in the day, it's quite sophisticated how we got it together. Um, but the kids were just enjoying it. And I, for my mind, it's a real challenge as a filmmaker. If I can make a film which can entertain a six-year-old right up to a 66-year-old or an 80-year-old, then I've won. So, yeah. yeah it's, it's great fun. Oh, that's just brilliant. And it must be really lovely to get that kind of um, response. It is, it is. So after Catalina, what was next? Well, I, as a kid... In the, I don't know, the late 70s and early 80s, I loved BBC television when they would go, and now for a season of science fiction films, and they'd show uh, films like uh, War of the Worlds, When Worlds yeah. Collide, um, and one of my favourites, well, The Day of the Earth Stood Still, and uh, what's the other fantastic one, Forbidden Planet. Yeah. I love that film. So... Um, I was in my day job, but I realized it wasn't really what I wanted to do and things weren't going particularly well for me in the day job, actually. You know how things are. Yeah. And I bumped into a neighbor. It was a partner of a neighbor who owned, who's a very successful entrepreneur. And this gentleman owned a prominent business in the city center of Leeds. And he said, um, well, look, Kenneth, I've got this great big hall, which is empty right now. Um, why don't you use that as a basis for your film and you can shoot there and off you go. So it just massively accelerated all these things coming together, accelerated departing from my day job, being given this facility to shoot in. I thought, well, let's make this film. It's called On the Shoulders of Giants and it's set um, in the year 20, in the 23rd century, whatever it may be. But we built this bridge for this 1950s retro-styled starship inside this old disused church hall. <laughs> and we set up this great big special effects green screen inside the church hall as well. Uh, it was just such a, a wonderful sponsorship from Professor Adam Beaumont. Um, it allowed me to make a film which I could not have made on no budget. It allowed us to raise production values incredibly high. So I'm eternally grateful for that. And I think we made a really cool film as a homage to all those 1950s films, which I loved as a kid. I still enjoy now. Um, you know, it was just, we had all kinds of things in there. We had a kind of a mad professor. We had, you know, intelligent plant life. <laughs> uh, a good dollop of science fiction. But once again, I'm trying to get a, a nice thick vein of entertainment in all my work so yeah incredibly pleasing a very complicated film to make had um about 700 special effects inside i watched the trailer it was really impressive I, I was i really love the costumes how did you how did you go about sourcing those yeah i had a very talented costume uh maker rachel who responded to an advert advert i must have put on facebook one of the film specialist forums i said uh we've got this tiny budget we're making this really cool film 
it's an opportunity that somebody liked to come out and play. So uh, Rachel came along and then we met and she pretty much ran off and took a brief i think they're based on pretty much standard boiler costumes boiler suits and then she <laughs> added her motifs and the pearls and everything it was great measuring the actors for it and um i think they fit in you know well enough on the screen considering our budget was you know pretty minuscule i think tom cruise would laugh at me you know, yeah budget. but um we got the film made and kind of when i make when i think about lovies there's one really lovely um makeup artist who worked on the film, Ashley. And uh, I remember one day we were running out of production. It was kind of busy, but it was a good natured shoot. And she'd finished making up the lead actor. And she turned to me and said, Kenneth, is there anything I can help you with? You know, I'm really enjoying myself. What else do you, what else do you need? And it, even that actually brings a lump in my throat. Nearly, nearly kind of teared up because I, she, she just gave and she didn't have to. And many other people say, would say, oh, that's not my job. I won't do anything else. But people like Ashley just want to throw in. It's just tremendous. So hats off. Oh, that's great, isn't it? Do you think that was partly because anybody who's sort of involved with any aspect of film has that passion? I think so. It's A lot of people said, oh, you're making a film. Can I be in it? Well, can you act? And then when you put the camera on people, they freeze up. Yeah. I was in my first film. I had to cut myself out because I'm, I'm wooden. And I respect <laughs> actors totally because it is a craft and all the craft people who work on the specialist areas, they, I stand in all of them. It's not being a, a pithy comment. You know, I cannot make a film without these guys. And on um, on the shoulders of giants inside this church hall, we had about 23 crew working on every day for five weeks. It was just wow. amazing. And people, and a lot of people who've got very particular skill sets wanted to put in, but they also wanted to take out the, the really smiles of saying, um, this is what I want to learn. This is how I want to push myself. And, you know, it, we just, we had the result that we needed. Yeah, definitely. Your your company, uh, your film company is called uh, Water on the Rock. What's the significance of that phrase? What a brilliant question. <laughs> I was walking down Chapel Town Road one day in probably mid-1997. And um, I was thinking, oh, why is it so blasted hard to get into the film industry? It's, you know, oh, it's just a killer. And I'd studied engineering for reasons which will just, uh, just mind bending. I studied engineering. So I was into hydraulics and things. And uh, it just made me think walking down this road in Chapel Town, I was heading to the city for some reason. You know, how do I get into the film industry? It's just like water on the rock. If you put enough water on anything, at the right pressure, you'll eventually crack it open. Yeah, I thought, oh, of course, what a name for my company. And it also made me think of um, the Archbishop Dr. Desmond Tutu in South Africa. Yeah. He said the people are like water on the rock. They keep pushing and using peaceful protests and political will. They broke apart the system of apartheid. So it's that dual uh, heritage of, you know, you keep applying, you keep pushing. Don't give up. When people are laughing at you, just stick to your guns. You will break it open. And that's, for me, the name of my company is Water on the Rock. Just keep pushing and it's starting to deliver fruit. Yeah, definitely. And have you got any projects um, that you're working on currently or that you're thinking of working on in the future? Absolutely. Uh, after On the Shoulders of Giants, I did this comedy schlock thing. Uh, it's very cheesy. It's called Bikini Girls versus Dinosaurs. And... <laughs> exactly as it sounds the idea for that was if you were going to fight a dinosaur what's the most inappropriate thing you would wear well, <laughs> it's a bikini so we had some really great actresses come out and take part in that film it's um it's played straight the comedy is in the premise once again they have some great fun dialogue it's a bit like um a red dwarf for the sci-fi fans out there that kind of cheesy element small c but we had some great computer generated dragons Technology allowed us to move on to make some better imagery. And um, from there, I've written a few more pieces. So I wanted to jump from having basically no budget to having some budget. Yeah. So what I'm working on now is two things. Um, the principal front runner is a project called Air, the movie. And Air is about an interna a fictional international air race set just after World War II. And that was inspired by films like Those Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machine, The Great Race, 
um, all that classic kind of 60s films, which I loved as a kid. Um, you know, Wacky Races with Dick Dastardly. Yeah. I'd love to see that on a big screen. Because I remember in 1998, are you a Bruce Willis fan, Hazel? Uh, I think Bruce Willis tends to always play Bruce Willis. <laughs> Bit like Sean Connery. I yeah. loved him in um, Armageddon about the giant meteorite going to impact Earth. I remember going to see it when that film came out. And um, in particular, I like to go and have me, uh, what do I eat? Maltesers and my minstrels and a <laughs> fizzy drink. I was near the front and the film was on and it just completely swept me up. I, I remember trying to bend down to get my chocolate and I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. <laughs> I want to bring that back to air. So where we are in the air right now is um, we've got a screenplay. And this time we're trying to raise production value. We're trying to raise some proper investment. So potentially in December or January, I'm hoping to have a funding event in the city centre. We've got a very uh, professional venue who said they'll sponsor their venue for me to do this and just present the film to a group of... Um, high net worth individuals essentially who know why they are at this presentation and get them to back the film. Yeah. Uh, we have a tax relief certificate, an interim tax relief certificate from the British Film Institute and the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sports. So anybody putting money in potentially can get a quite a healthy rebate, rebate back from the tax man for investing in essentially a high risk project. Yeah, um, I've got some very talented crew lined up who want to come out and work on the visual effects departments, camera teams, and costume. Um, Yorkshire, you probably know, is a hotbed of very talented people. Yeah, and a project like this has got scope for employing some very skilled people. A lot of people developing their skills. So it's just a case of getting that finance in place, and then I think um, we've got a. I can't say a world beater, but we've got something which can stand on the global stage. Oh, how how amazing! Well, let me know when you're at uh, when you're close to that point, and I can always okay. add links and things like that to the podcast notes. So if anybody's interested, they can get involved. That'd be tremendous because it's always about collaboration. Um, the best ideas coming to the front. Yeah, exactly. And so you said two projects. So air is one. What's the other? Uh, I'm harking back to my 50s um, fun phase. I've been working on recently a thing called Earth versus Martians versus Giant Robots. <laughs> that uh, sounds absolutely brilliant. It's going to be fun. It's just I loved War of the Worlds, uh, the 1950s version, and also the more recent version with Spielberg and Tom Cruise. And I liked um, when worlds collide, the way they played, the way they looked. And I have a three-year-old son, and he was playing with some um, building blocks. And I thought, wow, he's built this crazy robot. And I was using some Play-Doh to play alongside him. And I thought, hey, this looks like a Martian. Then the idea <laughs> just landed. You know, Earth versus Martians versus giant robots. I've never seen that mashup before. So I guess I was a guy who's got to make it. So we've just completed a teaser trailer. And I've met a very talented composer who's going to create some... Um, classic 1950s music do you know the sound of the theremin yes i do i i've asked this gentleman to put some theremin in so i'm waiting to hear back from him the audience will know your audience will know that yeah so, it's, it's a real sound isn't it it sort of conjures up space and eeriness exactly so that's the thing we're going for so we're going to put that teaser together um I'm tr i've actually been struggling quite a bit recently to think I love Air, the movie, and Earth vs. Martians vs. Giant Robots so much, but Air is a bit more developed in terms of being a commercial, pro a wider commercial project. So I've had to literally in the last, I don't know, week or so, bring that to the forefront again. And depending on how Air goes, get a start on Earth vs. Martians perhaps late in the new year, because that would be an easier project to finance. Yeah. Great to be able to finance the two together, but you've only got one pair of hands kind of thing. So, yeah. um, the Earth versus Martians versus Giant Robots does what it says in the tin. It'll be great fun. And at this time, uh, of this kind of film, it's once I live in Leeds, I consider myself an adopted Yorkshire son. It would be based in the UK. We get to blow up part of the Houses of Parliament. I can't say any more than that. You just blow it up on the screen, I hasten to add. It's going to be tremendous fun, but it's set right here in Yorkshire. So it's going to have a real grassroots thing, but go around the world. 
that is that just sounds absolutely fantastic. And so you said you're an adopted son of Yorkshire. How long have you lived in Leeds? Uh, I like to joke that I left my house in Ipswich in the mid nineties to get a loaf of bread. I've ended up living in Leeds ever since. So I've been here. I came up to go to film school in 1994. I've just stayed because I realised film is my thing. I love it. I've, found, I've done a few other career jobs and I've been false starts. So I'm glad I've had that failure because it's actually made me um, obsessed and hungry for the thing I really enjoy and I love with a great passion. And um, I've just stayed because... London is traditionally seen as the media mecca, yeah. perhaps Manchester more recently, um, but you're a much smaller fish in a huge pond in London. And I've seen a lot of contemporaries go there and falter and move away from the film industry and everything else. Whereas in Yorkshire, um, no disrespect to London, Londonites, but I found people to be incredibly friendly. Um, I love that the countryside is so close by. It was real undiscovered country. Um, yeah. There's so many great things around here. And the tech, if you need to meet somebody in London, well, guess what? You can hop on a train or a coach and be there in short order. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Two hours, 20 minutes these days. Exactly. So every, just stay here in Yorkshire, build a base here, build a name here, and then the world's your oyster. Yeah, exactly. So you've lived here definitely long enough to answer the three questions that I ask every guest. Uh-huh. The first one being... Um, what would you say is great about the city of Leeds? Uh, you know what? One of the people are friendly. I remember the first week I was here, I was living in the Hare Hills and uh, near where Tradex used to be, which is now Morrison's. Oh, yeah. And um, I came around the corner. I said, excuse me, mate, I've lost. And the guy literally took me by my hand and took me to where I needed to go, oh. which was tremendous. <laughs> and um, it makes me think. Leeds is a big city. It's a thriving city. You can see its prosperity by all the tar cranes still building things, but it's not so big that you can get lost. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. And if you had to choose something not so great, what would you go for? Um, I've got that written down, so you really have to scratch my head. I think it's almost a minor one, really. It would be, I suppose you start looking at the social side, there's still pockets of, you know, depravity, uh, yeah. deprivation in the city but that's changing um as a car driver parking in the city is becoming more you know difficult yeah it's a relatively minor thing um it's just hoping the whole you have leveling up it's bring the whole city to be leveled up that would be yeah. my just one down on leads yeah i agree with you completely and if somebody um, had been a resident of Leeds for a very long time, would you be able to tell them about something that you would consider to be a hidden gem that they might never have heard of? There's two things there. There's two things. And I didn't know this until quite old neighbours told me a while ago, but the Tesco on Roundhay Road it used to be the site of an aircraft factory. I think oh, I didn't World know that. one or two. Um, so that was, Wow. But also, it's that hidden, you've probably know, heard this one a million times, it's the hidden bandstand in Roundhay Park. After years of being here, I, fi- I was finally shown it, and it's magical. Oh, I don't think I have, you know. I don't think I have heard of that. Oh, but it's a beautiful old dilapidated bandstand, hidden. Uh, well, it's not hidden, it's just not well known in the back of Roundhay Park. Um, and when you go there, it's... And today I went in particular, the sun was still high, but through all the greeny, it was just like being in, in Middle Earth, you know, Lord of the Rings. It was just absolutely magical. And apparently back in the day, the ladies would promenade up the remains <laughs> of the footpath and just sit in this area and enjoy the view, which is now kind of overgrown and has been forgotten. But it's just like a, a time machine. So, you know, I'm not going to reveal where it is. Actually, I couldn't even say it without giving precise <laughs> People will have to go and find it for themselves. That's it. And it's a great delight and a joy to see in, in person. Oh, well, they're wonderful choices. It's been fantastic talking to you, Kenneth. Um, what will you be doing with the rest of your day? Right, I will. My dear, dear elder sister has come to visit me from Stoke-on-Trent. And um, I'm just blessed that she's made time to see us for the weekend. So we'll spend time there. And then um, a friend of mine, Dave Newell, I believe you've spoken to Dave, actually. That's right, yeah, I have. One of your guests. He is very involved in the Asperger's uh, charity. So they're going to be at the Comic Con in um, Harrogate tomorrow. It's one of the, I think it's the biggest one in Europe. Yes, like it's the Thought Bubble Festival, is that right? 
that's it. Absolutely spot on. Uh, I do a bit of photography from time to time. And for the last several years, I've been photographing the Asperger's stand, Dave's charity stand at Thought Bubble. So I should be doing that this weekend. Oh, well, definitely say hello to him from me. I will do. Thank you so very much. It's been great speaking to you. And, you know, enjoy your sister, enjoy Thought Bubble. And, yeah, let me know when you've got links that I can add and then people can get involved and help out with it, with these great filmic endeavours of yours. Hazel, thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a great weekend. Thank you. It was fantastic chatting to Kenneth Barker. Do go along and look at WOTR Films' website where you can see details of all of the great things that he's done. And you can also check out a lot of his work on YouTube. He chose to feature a song by really another friend of the show, Johnny Cosmic and the Night Terrors. You might remember Johnny Cosmic from the Leeds Tarot Deck episode. He was a really interesting guest, and now you can hear him sing. And the song is called Count Creepyhead. It's incredibly hard, fast-driven rock music, I guess you would say. Um, but if I was you, I probably wouldn't listen to the lyrics for small children. But if you're not with small children... Bang it on really loud. Anyway, Leeds, it's been great chatting to you and I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Many faces, many lives, many notches, many brides, a reputation spanning wide, a silent killer in the night. Between the living and the dead They call him Count Creepy Head Make sure you're careful where you tread The creeper is out there Many lives, it's likely you know her.